Hello, welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode, Festivities of Heat. This is part 6 and 7 in our 12-month look at the Egyptian religious year. This time, it's a one-two punch of months which were connected with one another, both in their name and in the fact that their major festivals overlapped. I could pretend that that was planned, but I won't lie to you. In the rush to complete the Syrian Tales episodes, and the Mammoth Project, which ended up being episode 79, the mini-episodes went on the back burner. How fortuitous for me that month 6 and 7 are actually better when described together. So let's just pretend that was planned. I am very organised. Now then, month number 6. Month 6 went by a number of different names which changed over time. In earlier times, it was called the month of Pa-ni-Mecher, or the one of the basket. In the New Kingdom, it was called Reke-Wer, or the great heat. This is odd, because the sixth month was actually in the middle of Egypt's winter. This discrepancy was a leftover from the very ancient days when the Egyptians had used a lunar calendar. So the months of heat, 6 and 7, were actually located in their winter. Once upon a time, they had been in their summer. Month 6 and month 7 were the second and third months of the season of Peret. Peret, or coming forth, was the planting and farming season. At this time, Egyptian farmers were out in the fields, cultivating their grains. Accordingly, these months were light on popular festivals, festivals for the common folk. Instead, they had just a few elite festivals. In other words, this was a time for festivals that were mostly celebrated in the temples, by a select few. For most of the country, these months were all about the work. On day one of the sixth month, the priests celebrated a festival called the Sailing of Anubis. This was a sequel to a number of sailing festivals held in previous months. In month five, there had been sailings for Bastet, Wadjet, Sekhmet, and Mut. In month four, there had been the sailing of Hathor. Notably, those sailings were all for goddesses. Month six was the first of the sailings held for a divinity of the masculine gender. The sailing of Anubis was dedicated to the world-famous jackal god Yinpu, a.k.a. Anubis. Lord of embalmers, protector of the necropolis, a deity of unparalleled importance and reverence in Egyptian society. I'm sure I don't need to introduce Anubis to you, dear listener. The jackal-headed Lord of the Dead is one of the most famous symbols from ancient Egypt. But there's plenty that you may not know about him. What better time to take a look than when the god was leaving his temple for a parade around the country? Anubis was one of Egypt's oldest gods. He emerged as a figure of worship long before even Osiris, and he was worshipped right down to the end of the Pharaonic period. Shrines and images of Anubis were worshipped for over 3,000 years of human history. This makes Anubis one of humanity's most enduring and long-lived deities. So if you are looking for a god with staking power, Anubis is top tier. 
at the sailing of Anubis, the statue of the god would emerge from his shrine, carried by his priests. The statue was, most of the time, the image of a large jackal, resting on a podium. The jackal reclined on all fours, with his tail drooping down the back, and his ears perked up, as if he was constantly listening, alert for danger. His eyes were bright, watchful, and the god seemed to be forever on guard. This is appropriate, because Anubis's greatest role and responsibility was protecting and guarding the dead. The priests would carry Anubis's statue out of his shrine, which was usually incorporated into the grand mortuary temples built by different kings. These shrines were mostly on the west bank of the Nile. The most famous example, perhaps, is one added to the great temple of Hatshepsut at Deir al-Bahari. When the queen built her temple, she added a shrine to Anubis in the main complex. Here, he was close to his proper territory, and when he emerged from his shrine, he was well placed to guard and bless the tomb of the queen and those of the kings and nobles buried around that region. At Deir al-Bahari, Anubis's shrine was particularly convenient. Here, the god could come forth in order to give protection to the all-important valley of the kings. On the day of the sailing of Anubis, day one, the god's statue would journey out of his shrine in a small portable boat. These boats were models of the larger river craft, and they were carried on the shoulders of priests. In this way, the god could sail wherever he pleased, wherever he was needed. Most of the time, this was the cemeteries. Anubis, guardian of the necropolis, would go to the tombs and shrines, and there he and his priests would conduct their observances. The priests of Anubis are one of the few whom we know performed a kind of costume drama in the name of their god. One of the cooler relics to survive from the Anubis cult are a number of masks designed to look like the jackal god's head. These masks were worn by the priests, and one particularly fine example even has its shoulder rests and eye holes beneath the head of the god itself. You can see images of this mask at the podcast website. Basically, it's like an ancient Egyptian Halloween mask, but it's way cooler. The priests wearing these masks would reenact part of the god's legendary exploits. The most important and famous of these was the mummification of the great god Osiris. Anubis was the god who turned the dismembered body of Osiris into the world's first mummy, and so the jackal was forever associated with the act of embalming. So, in the festival of Anubis, the god would visit the great cemeteries, and the priests might pantomime that event. Doing so, they renewed the power of the story, and helped preserve the natural order of the world. Anubis and the powers he wielded over the deceased were a fundamental part of nature, so the sailing of Anubis helped to keep that nature in balance. So the festival of Anubis was concluded at sundown on day one of the sixth month. From there, we now fast forward all the way to day 30. Apart from the sailing of Anubis, the only other big festival of the sixth month was the one that occurred on day 30. This was called Amun in the Festival of Raising Heaven. This was a huge celebration lasting two or three days, and it marked the midway point in the Egyptian year. For us, of course, this would be the end of the year. For the Egyptians, it was the middle. The festival was tied with the passing of the winter solstice in ancient Egypt. 
The winter solstice is when the sun ends its descent towards the horizon and begins to ascend once more. In practical terms, it marks the point where the shortest day of the year passes and the days begin to lengthen once again. For the Egyptians, the passing of the winter solstice was a big deal. It was the end of the period of death, when Re spent the most time near the horizon or near the underworld, and when he began to ascend. The solstice had technically occurred late in month 5, but thanks to that lunar festival discrepancy I mentioned earlier, the civil festival wound up being celebrated in January. If they had to rationalise it, I suppose the ancients could have said that the solstice had passed and now the sun was well on its way to rising once more. Therefore, the festival of the raising of heaven was still appropriate, even if it was a bit later. The festival of Amun and the raising of heaven was held at Karnak. The festival also included the worship of Ray, so it probably had a parallel celebration at the city of Iunu, aka Heliopolis. The temples of Ray and the temple of Amun were united in celebration on the same day, as they commemorated the passing of midwinter and the return of Ray or Amun Ray to his celestial ascendancy. As you can imagine, this was a big deal. At Karnak and at Iyunu, the worship of Amun and Ray would be held in the open air beneath the sun's rays. The priests were well equipped. In the days of Tutmos III, around 1460 BCE, parts of Karnak had been equipped with open-air shrines and altars to sun worship. On top of that, part of the temple's processional road had been realigned so that it followed the sun's axis on the day of the winter solstice. Basically, the priests of Karnak were perfectly set up for the worship of the god. At Iunu, or Heliopolis, the priests of Re were also involved in this festival. For them, the focus was very much on the ascendancy of the sun god, which had important symbolism for the renewal of nature and of the power of the king. The priests were focused on bringing the land towards its period of fruitfulness, of dragging the climate out of winter and towards a bountiful summer harvest. To do this, they had some powerful symbolic tools. On the last day of month six, the priests of Ray at Iyunu collected the leaves of a tree that is called the Ished tree. The Ished tree, probably the Persia tree, was the symbol of the rising sun. In other words, it was a symbol of Ray in his ascendancy. The tree gave sustenance and succour to the pharaoh, and when a king celebrated his coronation, his name was painted on the leaves of the tree. So it was a powerful symbol indeed. For the festival of the rising of heaven, priests at Iyunu collected branches of the Ishad tree and arranged them into bouquets. This was an important step, symbolising the end of winter and the coming of growth. The priests were participating in a most holy ritual, one which helped to usher in the prosperity for the coming year. As the last day of the sixth month ended, and the sun sank towards the horizon, the worship of Amun-Re and the festival of the rising to heaven was not yet finished. So as night closed in, the priests of the land prepared. The seventh month was about to begin. When we return, we'll dig into it. See you in a moment.
The seventh month began in late January and ran for most of our February. This was the month called Reke Nedjes, aka the Little Heat. Like the sixth month, the month of Reke Nedjes was out of sync with its name. It should have been hot, instead it was winter. Over time, this ceased to matter, as the month eventually became known by another name, a name which I'll get to in a moment. First of all, the seventh month began with the continuation and conclusion of the festival that began in month six. The festival of Amun in the raising of heaven was still in full swing as the month began. For priests at Karnak and at Iyunu, the celebrations and ceremonies were well underway. On the first day of the new month, the festival of Amun in the raising of heaven entered its second phase. At Thebes, the god toured his great temple of Karnak. He was celebrated by the high-ranking worshippers. Then he returned to his shrine once more. This seems a bit anticlimactic, but at least in the north, the priests of Rei were doing something slightly different. On the first day of the month, the festival of Amun and the raising of heaven was celebrated at Iyunu with a strange ritual called filling the sacred eye. This seems to have involved carrying bundles of leaves from the sacred Ished tree to a large altar which was designed to represent the Eye of Rei. Now the Eye of Rei was a title given to various goddesses. It was a bodyguard kind of title. Goddesses like Hathor or Sakmet were considered the Eye of Rei, and they acted on behalf of the great god as his agent and as his protector. Filling the sacred eye seems to have been a metaphor for renewing the powers of Rei. As the winter solstice had passed, and the sun was once again gaining height in the heavens, the priests made every effort on earth to assist that rising and to give Rei the power that he needed. So even if Amun had gone back into his temple in the most boring fashion, at least Rei was given another additional ritual, one that could give him great power for the year to come. Anyways, the festival of the raising of heaven passed, and the god returned to his shrine. Once again, the month settled into a quiet period, mostly of local celebrations, until the end of the month approached again. At this point, one of the new kingdom's great celebrations began, celebrations heavily associated with one of Egypt's most famous villages. Day 29 of the seventh month was the start of a festival held mainly in the village of Deir el Medina. This village, called Set Ma'at, or the Place of Truth, was located at Thebes, west of the Nile River, and it was the home for hundreds of workers, workers whose jobs were based in the Valley of the Kings. The village of Deir el-Medina had been founded around the time of King Amunhotep I. I covered the life of Amunhotep I in episode 57, but long story short, that king ruled around 1520 BCE, and he was generally credited with founding or at least providing the impetus for the village of Deir el-Medina as an institution. Accordingly, Amunhotep I later entered the pantheon of Egyptian gods as a patron deity of the village itself. At the same time, the king's mother, 
Amosa Nefertari received the same treatment, so the two became patron gods of the village of Deir el-Medina. On day 29 of month 7, the workers at Deir el-Medina celebrated the anniversary of the king's coronation. The festival of King Amunhotep I in the village was held at and around Deir el-Medina, and the deceased king's mortuary temple, which was located nearby. As you can imagine, this was a time for the villagers to let off steam, to celebrate their unique position in Egyptian society, and to enjoy a really good party. We don't know that much about the festival itself, but we can assume it involved a great deal of beer, local pilgrimages to visit the king's shrines near the village, and offerings to the image of the king himself. A small temple to the king was built in the hills above the village of Deir al-Medina, and there the craftsmen erected a painted statue of Amunhotep, a statue which survives to this day. The statue shows the king seated, wearing the classic royal headdress. His skin is a pale white, enhanced with black lines to bring out the detail. To either side of him, his throne is painted with bright yellow hieroglyphs. It is a lovely little statue, giving you a good sense of what the villagers were worshipping on their special day. As always, images at the podcast website. The festival of Amunhotep in the village went on for four days, in which time we can assume the villagers did very little work, and in which the statue of the god was endlessly fettered and worshipped. The great king, looking on from the afterlife, would have enjoyed a great feast of offerings. I wonder if his soul went into the Egyptian equivalent of a post-Thanksgiving food coma. So the seventh month closed with craftsmen at Deir al-Medina enjoying a grand old party. Their patron god smiled down from his temple. The villagers celebrated the existence of their town. As we'll see in coming episodes, some of those villagers were living a most fascinating life. So, we now come to the end of the 6th and 7th months. Relatively light on festivals, these months marked the halfway point of the Egyptian year. From here, winter was on the way out. The time of summer and harvest was visible on the horizon. It was exciting. Egyptians were looking forward with expectation. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to see a range of great podcasts currently on offer. Music for today's episode was produced by Michael Levy and Keith Zizzer. Head to egyptianhistorypodcast.com for links to these artists' pages, where you can find more of their fabulous compositions. That's all from me today. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>